Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier, and today's guest is one of the originals. I mean, he's been around the Salt Lake 2002 Games since the very beginning, actually before the very beginning. And honestly, he was just one of the really cool guys, probably the coolest guy that I ever had the pleasure of working with in any organization. So Bob Bills, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm still laughing over the introduction. <laughs> I've never I've never been introduced as a cool guy. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> you were you were just one of the cool guys, like real super real, you know, uh, you were who you were. So um the authentic Bob Bills. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I, I love that. Thanks. That's a good misnomer, but I like it. Well, we're going to go with it. Uh, it's my podcast and I can say what I want, right? I think it's accurate. <laughs> it's perfect. That's fine. <laughs> Thanks. Well, before we dive into the past here, Bob, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. And uh, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time because I know you are a super busy person. And in fact, you're on your way today to Southern Utah. Yeah, I I keep busy and, and I have now I, I just go from world's best job to world's best job. And uh, last year I was semi-retired in the Wasatch School District called and uh, the principal asked if I would uh, start teaching Spanish. They, they had a need for someone that was educated that could teach a college level Spanish and fill in with Latinos in action. And so at 65, I got to start a whole new career. And uh, you, you, I can't describe it. The, today, I just had a, a kid write me and he just wrote, he, he, he's been calling me Babito. And he just wrote and he said, you notice that wasn't bonito, which means handsome. So, I mean, you love the high school kids. And another kid sent me a note that just said, um, Bob, you looked really tired on the Zoom call today. So here's my private phone number. If you ever need to just talk to someone, this is a 15-year-old freshman kid. You know, you go, way to go. Life is great. Uh, a budding therapist. <laughs> yeah. So this is crazy, right? You So you're doing the school thing, but then this virus hits. Now you're doing all these Zoom calls. I mean, what's that like? It, it's, well, well, it's 1130 right now. And uh, this is my, you'd be, you'd be my fourth call today. So we started early this morning. And face to face, I actually meet a couple kids that are, uh, this is pretty traumatic for these kids. So I meet some of them personally. We go into the school. I have to be checked. They have to be checked. We have a nurse that takes temperatures. Uh, we have to be in masks and we have to sit far apart. And it's tough. You know, some of these kids end up crying, you know, in, in class. They're just having a hard time with everything. But, and they're, they're excelling. They're, they're doing stuff that uh, I just don't think I could have done. Well, good for you for helping them out. I can't imagine how traumatic it is for the kids. I mean, their entire lives get turned upside down. Uh, and school really provides the structure for them. And when that structure is taken away, it can be a challenge. Yeah, I feel sorry for the seniors that are graduating. Those are the kids. My Latinos in action. We did our own photo shoot up in the hills, safe distance with the photographer. And, um, you know, Latinos, everyone wanted to hug each other. And we just had to stand around and get pictures. It was tough. But they're succeeding. Yeah, it's kind of hard to give an abrazo from a distance, right? Yeah, muy bien. Hablo español. Muy bien. Hablo poquito. Parece que más. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe we should just do the podcast in Spanish. That would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, we could do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, thanks for giving us a little bit of a snapshot, a tiny snapshot of what you're up to these days. But as I mentioned at the outset, we're here to remember Salt Lake 2002. Right. And you were there before the Big Bang, before, before the very the beginning. Bang. Yeah, actually. One of, the, one of the very originals. Yeah. Um, even before the bid, you have to remember, we had to win for the USOC. You know, and that's what's going on right now with our new bid. We have to be selected by the USOC. And so what happened is I just fell into this. It was one of these natural, wonderful things. Uh, I was coaching a cycling team, the Plymouth Reebok cycling team. And we put on a large national stage race right out of Park City. And I was looking for sponsors and someone gave me the name of the Utah Athletic Foundation. And so I gave them a call and I spoke with a guy named Dave Johnson. Isn't that amazing? And Dave said, you know what? I need a national championship for masters. He didn't tell me why. He just said, would you be able to put that race on? So with his money and his support, we put on uh, my race, my large junior stage race, as well as the masters national championship, downtown Park City. And he kept introducing me to all of these people from Colorado and all these people from all over the country that um, all had titles with Olympics somewhere in their title or, you know, the national team of this. And what I didn't realize is these were the people who were coming out to see how we could organize events. So that's how I fell into the whole Olympic scheme was organizing an event for them. I went on to coach the national team, the U.S. cycling team. And when I resigned to come back and finish my doctorate, they had me work with international relations out of the U.S. Olympic Committee in Colorado. You know, they needed my Spanish, they needed my French. And so I worked with them as I was resigning out of cycling team. And they, once again, they had me call Salt Lake City and work with the, uh, they were organizing the bid committee. And they said, can you please just do some translating, call some IOC members, blah, blah, blah. Once again, I was on the phone with Dave Johnson. I go, hey, long time no here. So when I got back to Salt Lake, got enrolled at the U, he called me and said, could you, and this is a great story, said, could you do us a big favor? Would you mind being a chauffeur for a night? And I go, a chauffeur? Um, why? What happened was they were bringing in, I think it was the second, the first IOC member was actually um, Monaco, Prince Albert. So they're bringing in a South American IOC member, and I was the chauffeur, and I was not supposed to speak to him. I was just supposed to drive and then listen to everything that was being said between he and his wife in Spanish and report back to Dave and Tom, which uh, Tom Welch, which I did. So that moved on to a couple more. And next thing I know, they they said, would you mind just working for us? Because we have a lot to do other than just, you know, translating and being a chauffeur. So they had me start right downtown in Salt Lake City. This is, uh, we had just won the bid. We were organizing and there were all of five of us. Dave and Tom, um, but it was a small group. We had no titles. We just did everything that needed to be done. One day I'd be typing uh, emails to people, typing physical letters, meeting people at the airport, working with some sponsors, working with some of the, pe the key people in Salt Lake City. We had no titles. We did everything, and that's how it started. So we were there, you know, I was there from the first IOC member visits. Tell me a little bit about the domestic competition. Who were the cities that you were up against? And when was the domestic bid awarded to Salt Lake City? Well, I can't remember the dates. You're asking old guys. <laughs> Daniel Pacheco was great at this. Um, I can't remember the exact dates, but we were actually our big, big competition 
at that time was Squaw was wanting to come back and Denver. And Denver had the leading edge. I mean, the people in Denver voted it down. They had a big committee that was push, pushing it. The USOC wanted Denver, a big city. You know, you had the, the, the hub out there with the airlines with United and Denver backed out. And so we put our best foot forward and that's how we, we won it. So I'm guessing that's probably 1993 to 94 timeline. And then oh, uh, because the games were awarded in 95. It was in 95, but I was working when I came back from the uh, national team, it was 1990. And so I was working with them on 1990, 91. That's when we actually started organizing a lot of the visits, getting people in, getting things moving. The bid committee was really at its infancy. I don't even know if we had a name. We didn't, we definitely did not have a logo that that was designed a couple of years later. So it was from the very beginning. It was one big office. We had a little private room. You could go in if you needed to talk to someone privately. It was one big L-shaped office and we're running around uh, everything from typewriters to telefaxes to two or three computers that we shared. That was it. Now, it's good to have you on here because the bids, the way they used to be run are not the way they're run today, right? I mean, we had IOC members coming and visiting and that doesn't happen anymore. They, they just have a, a working group that comes and, you know, they have evaluation commissions. But uh, back on that day, it was a very, very different process. Uh, actually, from the first bid to the second bid was a huge difference. The first bid, we would have multiple IOC members in at the exact same time, which kept me and Dave and Tom and Kim and everybody else hopping and jumping. We did not want anyone to know or the other IOC members to know that there was another IOC member in town. So we had them at different hotels, different schedules, use of many chauffeurs. We'd pick them up at one place, take them to one restaurant. We'd have time changes where someone else would be eating at a house. And so we went to the proposed venues. It was all on a very tight, organized schedule, very tight schedule. And every now and then someone would see each other and it was very nice. They'd be happy, but we wanted them to make sure they felt special. And that's what we did. We had to make sure that they were getting the full attention of Dave and Tom as much as possible. Now, who were the cities internationally that you were up against? Actually, Nagano was our big one, and we lost to Nagano. In fact, there's a lot of interesting stories on that. Nagano, they, they ran a very good, tight, structured, organized bid, and the Japanese hospitality was was at an extreme high. And we had certain ways we got to know about this. And uh, well, another story is that an IOC member from South America, we got to be very good friends with the South Americans, especially. But the South American gave me some rolls of film. They said, hey, would you please have these processed? I would really appreciate it. And, and just make them duplicates. I bet Tom would like to see how much fun we had in Nagano. And so... When we um, when I got them printed, I, I gave a set to Tom, and we were just shocked at the things that they were doing. You know, bobsled rides, and they'd, they'd give them a fur coat so they'd have something to wear when they're on their um, dog sled ride. You know, just fun different things that they were doing. Just huge, extreme dinners with all kinds of people is it's just amazing. So we learned a lot from others helping us in our naivete. Actually, we were we were very naive. We did not know how to run. To, to host. As far as being gracious and good hosts, yes, to the upper level that the other countries and uh, bids were doing, we didn't know how to do that yet. 
And it, it showed jumping ahead when we went to the selection in Birmingham, England, our room was very nice. They brought a hand cart over, a, the, a real hand cart. We flew over. We had the Deseret String Band playing. And we were giving out these nice statues that said, go for the gold of a miner. And you were pushing Park City. So that's what we were doing. And, and our room was nice and fun and friendly. And um, here, here's the difference. You know, I don't want to get into the scandal or anything like that. But here's the difference. The IOC member from Cuba he and I got to be very good friends because he, he spoke no English and we just sit and talk all the time. And as an elevator door opened on my way up to my room, he got on and he gives me a big hug and he says, hey, Bob, I have a laptop computer that was just given to me. I can't take this home to Cuba. Do you want it? And I just looked at him. I was a little baffled. He goes, Bob, it's a Japanese computer. Do you understand? The doors opened. He walked off. He turned around and smiled at me and said, remember, it's a Japanese computer. And that was it. So we, that's, how wow. we, that's how we learned what was going on with the other guy. He was never going to give me the computer. I was asked that. No, he was letting me know what was going on. And he did it in a very nice way. It's fascinating. It's Big fascinating. Now, I mean, Salt Lake uh, in 1998, that, that, that was an underdog. You know, Atlanta's has the 1996 uh, yeah. games, and and so it was considered unlikely that the games would be awarded to the United States two games in a row. Now, fast forward to 1995, you're going through that competition, and then comes the day of the announcement. Where were you when that announcement was made? Were you here in Salt Lake? Were you back in Budapest where they made the announcement? And what was it like when you found out that Salt Lake was awarded the games? Uh, I was in Budapest. And once again, I had the world's greatest job. My job in Budapest at that time was to um, host all of our IRC members. We had a hosting room that was much downplayed, much more downplayed than what we had before. We were now living on our abilities. We knew what we could do. And that's, that's what happened exactly. We were getting better and better and better. So my job was to be in the room, host IOC members. And then I won't say who, but I had to shepherd one of our athletes. I had to shepherd that athlete because uh, I won't say he or she, that person just happened to say a few things that we went, well, they, they interviewed her, the international press interviewed her. Oh, I said her anyway, anyway interviewed her. And they said, uh, <laughs> you think of, and they named a couple other bids. And that athlete said, Oh, this city sucks. I've been there a lot. They're nothing like Salt Lake. And we went, oh, great. So that's going to hit the news. So my job was to um, be side by side with that person and step in when necessary to keep the conversations a little, let's say, uh, professional. <laughs> you know, That's awesome. So you're sitting in Budapest. Samaranch gets the envelope. Samaranch got the envelope. Uh, and uh, tell tell us tell us give us the play by play Samaranch opening the envelope. Yeah, that was a highlight, a memory I can never forget. There were large screen TVs in the room, and they were going around and showing the other areas. They showed Sweden, and we you heard this whoa because there were so many people and they were doing folk dancing, you know, and this music was playing and. And I go, oh, that's amazing. Oh, my gosh. I just hope someone's downtown Salt Lake. When they showed Salt Lake, the entire place, it was a gasp. 
it was full of people. They had to pan backwards so they could fit the people into the screen. And it was just the balls were bouncing around. I know you you remember seeing all that. And then when he started to read it, it just got quiet in the room. And they were showing each country, each city. And when they said, you know, the, the Salt Lake City, it was this explosion just an explosion on our screen and the other screens all went dark quickly, but our screen was going crazy and our delegation was going crazy. And the IOC members, you could see the ones on our side jumped up and started clapping. So it it was really exciting. It was one of these moments you just can't describe all the years, all the work we had done in one second. It was just, it worked. That's what it was. It worked. You're telling me about it, and I'm getting goosebumps just remembering it. I wasn't there downtown at the Salt Lake City County building. I remember I was at work, and um, at that time, I I worked in technical support, you know, uh, with a software company, and we had a TV in the office. And so all of us in the company, there were about 80 of us, I think, at that time, um, just got in this big break room with the TV, and we were just sitting there watching it. And then when they said the city of Salt Lake City, then we we all exploded in the room, and we watched the uh, the city, you know, the the huge crowd around the city county building explode as well. I mean, it was just a magical, magical moment. Well, when we got back to Salt Lake, they flew us all back in on a, a chartered flight. In fact, maybe we shouldn't say this, but we got to do something that you couldn't do nowadays. They let us come up into the cockpit as we flew over Greenland to see the huge glaciers. It was amazing. But when we got into Salt Lake, all of a sudden, we went underneath the fire trucks and the, we had the big arches of water coming over us and, and people were there meeting. So the celebration continued. It, it was indescribable. That's amazing. And at those times, uh, the security wasn't like it was now. I mean, uh, you know, people can greet you there at the gate at the airport. I mean, I, I can imagine it was just an amazing, uh, amazing return to, uh, there to Salt Lake. But then reality sets in. Holy cow, we've won. Now we have to organize these games. We've got to put them on. So t- take us through that. The realization sets in. Okay, now we've got it. Now we've got to get to work. We've got to roll up our sleeves. You, know, you, you hit it. The realization was very big in that each of us had come from a different background. You know, you, you had Dave, who was uh, a lawyer, financier. You know, I, I'd been an athlete, but I was really a student. I was trying to still work on my doctorate. Finally, I had to let that go. Reality hit of, what can I do? We need people to organize the Olympic Games now, not to host, not to party, not to take to show for people around. It was a whole different level. And so how did we fit in? And luckily, you know, I'd been an athlete, and so I I was kept around. But where did I fit in? No one knew. You know, I was a cyclist, and I was a ski racer, and I was an aerialist, free you know, free skier, freestyler. I was fifth in the world, but aerials wasn't even part of the equation in that Olympics. So where did I fit? And it was just a hard thing to do. A lot of us left. A lot of people moved around, and then Tom calls me back and asks if I would. uh, go out to Kearns to run the speed skating oval. And I go, Tom, I know nothing about speed skating. And he goes, Bob, it's a flat velodrome. You know a lot about it. It's the same. It's the same. <laughs> type of people. It's all it is. Go forward, turn left. That's all it is, Bob. 
And he said, we need someone out there with some marketing skills that can add some personality. And um, he said, you would be working for us, but you work for them. We're paying them your salary because it was an increased salary to actually, once we won the games, we had to have something that was a showcase. So it had to, it had to go from being the Kern Center into an international showcase. And that's where they wanted me to, to take it up. I'd seen that with the velodromes and everything else. So I just went in and started building it up and uh, learned all about speed skating. In fact, that's where, luckily, my old coach when I was a ski jumper, one of my coaches was Jim Page, who now worked with the USOC with athlete development and, and things such as that. And he came up to me when I ran the Oval, and this is where the, everything changed with this one statement. He goes, Bob, I want to see 10,000 little kids out here with big blades. You got to do it. And that's what I did. So I came up with the program where we started going out to all of the schools locally in Kearns, fourth, third, fourth, and fifth graders. And we provided free skate lessons. I hired a guy to help me run this. And um, we started giving out lessons to all these kids, getting them into speed skating. And the clubs would come in and help us out. And we, they would recruit from our clubs. And um, we got 10,000 kids. It took a couple of years, but we got 10,000 kids on skates. Oftentimes, people today, they think of the Olympic Games as very corporate, but what you did there was a very grassroots effort, right? <laughs> you're, you're right down there in the trenches with the locals, building up engagement and enthusiasm and involvement right there on the ground. Yeah, What you were talking about, the corporate level was definitely happening downtown in the Salt Lake office, but I was miles away in a whole other world. In fact, when Tom Welch left, most of the people in that office had no idea that I was actually a slock employee. No one knew that. And that's how I got the job is I had to give a report on what I had done out at the Oval because they, everyone was impressed. 10,000 kids skating. How did you do it? So I had to give a, a report and they had just hired Shelly, Shelly Thomas. She was in charge of all marketing. And she came up to me and she goes, can we have a meeting off site? She didn't want anyone to think she was recruiting me, you know? And so we met at a Denny's 7.30 in the morning when no one would be there and, and you know, out, out away from everybody in Salt Lake. And she said, I got to figure out a way to get you on to, to Slock. I, I just got to, I, I, just give me some time. And I go, I, I think I can resolve that. You walk down to HR, you go, hey, can you transfer Bob over to my office? <laughs> and that's what she did. She transferred me over and I became the uh, director of all of the youth programs. And her goal was this. You have to understand what she was coming from and then what we later did with it. The governor told Shelley she needed to make sure the Olympic Games affected every young person in this state, that somehow they got something positive out of the games. And she looks at me and she says, that's your job. You figured it out because I have no idea what he's talking about or no idea what we can do. And um, so I just sat in my uh, sensory deprivation tank, big bathtub, just laid there. And I started thinking, okay, who are these constituents? Who are these kids? And, and think about it. It's, you've got athletes. Okay, that's easy. You've got some kids down in the reservation. You've got kids all over, you know, in some areas that are financially deprived. They, they just, 
it, it was not one consensus group. And so I started thinking, okay, how do we get them into sport? And everything came back to sport. So I went, okay, we're getting kids from the street, street to sport. You know, these were the underprivileged. These are the kids out in areas that would never see the Olympics. Then I said, okay, let's start recruiting kids. So I'm getting them from sport. There it was. There was the name, sport to sport. I, I got track kids, put them in skeleton. Big football players, put them in bobsled. Deaf kids, put them in luge. High sense sport. So it just went from there. And then we started doing all these different programs, the school to sport, the skate to sport. And, and it just kept going and going from there. And it ended up by the end of the games, we had reached out to virtually every kid. And this was done with Daniel Pacheco with when he did was in the education group. Um, we reached out to every single kid in this state and, and we hit it. We hit the goal. But in Sydney, I saw something that I that was surprising to me that they had no youth development programs. And I started thinking, what's going to happen to these venues? And, and you know the history of the venues, you know, the Olympic venues. You know, they, they took a chainsaw to the velodrome in, in, in Montreal. Most of the bobsled courses in the world are gone. The huge M-Wave in Nagano, this amazing building, is used as just a convention center now. The sports were gone. So working, working with Tom at the, you know, at the time, that's what we said, let's, let's make our venues live. And that's when the whole program shifted to these programs need to be developed for future. And to this day, we are one of the few Olympic Games that have developed a future that is still existing 20 some years later. Some of the programs I started have been just renamed, but they're still going and they're moving forward. And you go to the venues and the venues are full of little Utah kids and elite athletes from all over the world. We hit the goal. There's no way to to overstate it, Bob. I mean, what you did there was absolutely groundbreaking and incredible. The legacy of the games lives on to this day. And I think uh, it it's probably safe to say that, you know, because of those efforts and the great celebration that the games were, the games here in Utah remain extremely popular. One of the questions I have for you is culture, education, and engagement have become more important to the IOC. They've actually created, you know, functional area called engagement uh, recently. But generally, these initiatives in the organizing committees are poorly funded, if at all, which means that the people have to become very creative to find the funds to achieve their goals. And so, you know, Salt Lake, we're not going to talk about scandal or anything, but suffered some serious budget impacts. I know people in various areas had to find creative ways to achieve their goals. What were some of the creative things that you had to come up with to do a lot with not much money? I'll give the serious one first, then I'm going to hit my fun one. The serious one was, um, that was another thing we had to do is we had to make these programs that I designed. Each one of those programs, each one of those five had to be visible, had to be viable, had to be marketable. And you know, so I had all these goals that Shelly and I you know, worked on to make sure that we met them. The idea was we had to buy, we had to present to a sponsor and to see if we could sell a program to a sponsor. My youth program, the Street to Sport, was the only program out of everything that was presented. This was just outside of my programs. It was all different types of programs. Mine was uh, purchased by Delta. They gave us a million bucks, as I, as I remember. They painted a plane. 
I took two of my little athletes. We had a ski jumper and Carl um, Austin Cummings. He was an aerialist, a kid from Heber that had never skied a day in his life, but was a, was just put on the U.S. junior ski team as a ramp jumper aerialist. He'd never been on snow, but he could throw triple backs. <laughs> you know? So, And then we had Carl Wooten out of uh, Roy area, who was a bobsledder. And he built his own bobsled in the auto shop. And I've got an amazing story about Carl. But they traveled us all around the country to talk to people about what we did. So that was the big one. We got our money with that. The one that was fun is uh, I had a lot of friends that, of mine that said, you know, I want to try skeleton. I, I was racing skeleton by then. You know, I, I made it to the, to the national program, if you believe that. Old fat guy. Well, it's thin. But they said, I want to try skeleton. I, how do you get to go and ski jump every day? You know, I go out and jump all summer long at the sports park doing, you know, I got to flip. I, I was an aerialist, so now I get to do it in water. I go, this is amazing. So I thought, you know, you guys are just a bunch of wannabes. So we started the wannabe program. And people would pay to learn to go down. The, they got three runs on the, on the bob track, you know, from junior start on a skeleton sled. We had a, a wannabe skeleton, wannabe bobsled, wannabe aerials. But the best one, and this is what was amazing biggest seller we could get the most money out of was the wannabe Zamboni camp. You got to drive the Zamboni on Olympic ice, you know, out at the Oval and down in Provo. Guess who called? Mr. Zamboni himself flew out and he said he has done ice at every major international event in his, you know, he's ever been to except the Olympics and he wanted to be on Olympic ice. He paid his $500, like everybody else, to come out and drive on Olympic ice. We had CNN. We had the BBC. We had everybody interviewing us on all these junior programs. But the one they always came back was, is it true Mr. Zamboni really drove on the Olympic ice? They all knew about that. So that, that funded us. And, and the average Joe off of the street, you know, the middle-aged man, identity crisis, middle-aged crisis, whatever. They got to come and jump and go off the same venues and these same venues. They got to jump at the park, go down the Olympic track. It was very successful. These stories are so amazing. I, I want to ask you a question. Because you were there through the duration, you transitioned through various management leadership teams, right? So you start out with Tom Welsh, and then you go to Frank Joclick and Shelley, and then you go to Mitt and Frazier and Ed. And well, Ed was there during the Frank Joclick time, but and Shelley leaves and you know, what was it like to, to transition through these different leadership changes and the different cultures that each of these leaders brought to the organization? Yeah, it, it was actually very difficult. Each, each time was a, a shift. It was sort of like, and, and you do what, you know, as a job? And it was easily justifiable for a sports person, a venue person. It's easily justifiable, but once again, we were just meeting the governor's needs as far as they saw. It was Mitt who really, really saw the value of what we were doing um, in a couple of ways. He was all behind us, 100% behind us when we started recruiting in the deaf kids into Luge. He said, I want in on this. We were reaching out to crowds, and, and he was there behind us. He didn't know much about sport, but he wanted us to succeed. He was the one that recognized what we were doing. He goes, your programs are making these venues live. And I go, yes, absolutely. And they will live after the games. He goes, I was just thinking that. He jumped on 
And any, any recruitment program, any news article, anything that I did, I had to run it by Mitt next. You know, obviously he was looking at the bigger picture with the presidency, but he was looking at everything that we did, especially during the scandal, because what did I have? Smiley, shiny, happy faces that are doing big, scary, dangerous things. And it was newsworthy. Did you see that? Mitt was right there. Austin Cummings, the kid from throwing the triples, threw a triple backflip over Mitt right at the air, you know, at the pool. Um, Mitt was there. We took the, we had a program, School to Sport. We took that out to uh, Good Morning America. And before we did that, this is great. I taught Mitt how to slide skeleton. We got Mitt sliding skeleton from the top of the bob track, from the top of the skelly track. He was hitting well over 70 some miles an hour. He, he hit a lot of walls, but he did it, you know? <laughs> he did it. Um, it, was, it was kind of a noisy down, boom. Like, oh, that better hurt. We patted him up, but he did it. He did it. Mitt changed things. Uh, I was impressed. I sat next to Mitt in a meeting. Well, uh, backing up, let me tell you another story, then I'll tell you that. The first time I met Mitt, Shelly came into me. It was Mitt's first day on the job. The next morning, he was supposed to go out with my junior speed skaters out at the Oval. So I'd arranged to have all these little kids out there. And Shelly comes up. She goes, Bob, he's wearing a suit. What do I do? How do I tell him? And I said, I, I can handle this. So I went into our, remember how we had the, uh, the uniform stores and the clothes store and the little store in there? I grabbed a couple coats. I grabbed a turtleneck. And I grabbed a hat, went and knocked on his door, and he let me in. I said, hi, I'm, I'm Bob. I run the junior program. I'm going to be there tomorrow with a couple of my coaches. I'm going to have all my speed skaters there. We all wear this red coat, and we wear this turtleneck. I think you should wear this red one so you can be one of us. If you need to show you're different, here's the exact same coat in the blue. And he goes, what a great idea. I think I'll wear the red. And so Shelly was happy. And uh, she said, Bob, that was ingenious. And I go, Shelly, that's marketing 101. Come on, this works. So from that point, Mitt made it to be one of the team, one of the athletes. And when I said I was sitting next to him in a meeting, we were all discussing, and I can't remember what it was, but I watched what he did. And he'd listen to everybody's points and he'd put plus. He'd write the person's name down, write what they're talking about. And he'd put a plus, maybe another plus or a minus. And at the very end of the meeting, he just counted up the pluses, counted up the minuses, made his decision and goes, we go with this. He knew nothing what we were talking about. He knew we were the experts. And so he let us decide what really happened. And all he did was make the decision on what we had decided. It was ingenious. And I've learned so much from him. You, you can lead if you're a true leader. And he was, and he is. He is a true and was a true leader. We followed. He did not have our knowledge, but he pulled the knowledge out of us. He let us, he let us do what we knew how to do best, and he'd be, be there to back us up. Yeah, he, I, I'm not going to say he saved the games or anything such as that, but what he did is he pulled us together and he got us through a very tough time. You know, we've talked about all of this intense preparation that you've done, everything that you've done to engage the community, to engage the youth. But then the games come. What's your role at games time? Well, Mitt had gotten rid of, we were supposed to do the youth camp like every other Olympics, and that was a cost, and he was able to get rid of that. And so actually, 
three months before the games, it was like, what does Bob do? You know, because my stuff was winding down and the real games were coming on. Um, they wanted to hear about, you know, the Swiss downhillers, not the little kids from Heber doing triple backs any longer. And um, I had got a, I got a call from a friend of mine uh, who affiliated computer services. And he goes, I'm offering you a job right now. You know a lot about airlines. You know a lot about travel. Will you be our VP of travel, you know, of airlines division? Uh, and, and I go, no, I've got the games. He goes, I don't think you understand. In three months, there's going to be like 600 of you type A people out of a job. I said, I need you now. And um, it was getting tough in the games, you know, at that point, because my programs were um, overshadowing a lot of what the true sports department was doing. And they're actually bringing on the games, but the press just loved all my little kids' stories. And go, we, we hit virtually every city in the state with that school you know, the school to sport program. And so all these things were winding down and it was a perfect time to leave. And so at Einan and Mitt and Frazier, they, they all, they said, okay. So I was able to leave and I started a whole new career. It was hard. It was sad. Uh, my heart was still with the games, you know, naturally I had all my tickets. I had opportunities to go and do things, but it wasn't my games anymore. So it, that was hard. I can imagine. And did you get an opportunity to attend any of the events or participate in any oh, yeah. way? Or were you often doing your own thing and that was it? Um, I attended the events and it was very fun. I, I was, you know, I I had my tickets from prior. So I went to the skeleton because I, I knew all the, the national team people. In fact, Tristan and I, I, I work at Ice Castles in the winter and Tristan was here this year. Tristan Gale, she won the, the Olympic, the gold and skeleton. And we have a big ice slide. So she and I were racing each other down the slide this year. We'd run and dive on the slide on our stomachs. But yeah, um, I saw the speed skating. But it was, it was, it was hard, you know, um, being there, but not being in there. You, you know what I mean? I, I, was, I was just another observer. Even though I got to say hi to everybody, I knew it was still, I, I, I wasn't there in official capacity any longer. It, it was tough. So you're involved with these games for so long. You've dedicated a significant amount of your life to these. The games end. Your your tenure with the organizing committee ends. The games end. Um, then what's next for Bob? What did you do after that? I mean, you you went and did this travel thing for a while, but you what know, else did you do uh, beyond then? Seventeen years. I was. Um, I ran the uh, airlines divisions. We were acquired by Xerox, and uh, I kept my. You know, I kept my. Um, name and everything. I, I got asked to apply for a job with the um, legacy, you know, Olympic legacy committee. Or, and and um, it, it was pretty neat. You're, you talk about your Olympic moments. My true, true, true Olympic moment happened when I walked in for an interview about five years ago. I walked up to the sports park and um, I have my grandson and my three kids all work up at the sports park now. You know, the Olympic sports park. And I walk in and I see my kids and they're dad, dad, you know, and Bob. And then a lot of the athletes that I used to coach are now coaches. And they all start, Bob, how you doing, Bob? Come here. And so, you know, I went down to the pool and I got to play there. And then one of the um, people that I started in skeleton and bobsled, she's in charge of housing. She was in guest services. So she runs out. So my true Olympic moment was um, seeing kids. You know, from 15 years ago, 
that are still there. You know, there's still athletes or they're still coaching. They're still involved. My kids are now doing it. That was my true Olympic moment. You know, the, the games live on through them. Wow, Bob, what an incredible legacy that you've left here in this community. I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing all of your stories. Before we let you get in the car and go down to Zion's, uh, um, we do have a couple of assignments. So yeah, is there a particular song that you have in mind that whenever you think of it, it takes you back to your time working on the Salt Lake Games? Yeah, and this is one I guarantee no one has gotten. It's uh, I Want to Be a Cowboy by Boys Don't Cry. The reason is when we were jumping, you have to realize these are little local kids and they're training with the Olympic team. They got to jump at the same time, you know, as our, our Joe and all uh, Bergie, all the Olympians are there. And this song comes on and everybody's dancing around. And there's a, there's a maneuver in aerials called a cowboy where you pull your legs apart so you can increase rotation. And everyone's jumping around, just having a good time dancing to this stupid song. So every time I hear it, I just see bodies flipping through the air and people dancing on the jumps. So yeah, boys don't cry. Yep. All right, boys don't cry. We're (laughs) definitely. I know. I can see the tears, and I I tell you, I'm I'm sitting here welling up too as you're telling all these stories. We will add the boys don't cry to our Spotify playlist, so all the listeners can go on Spotify. You can just look up the Salt Lake 2002 playlist, and all of the songs that our guests have nominated are on there. The next question for you is the restaurant question. So a particular restaurant that you like to go to um, during your time working on these games. I, I cannot tell you the years that I hosted, how many times I've been to Lakai and all of the best restaurants in all of Salt Lake City. And I, I'm not putting anything down. It's just when you eat there three times a week. You know, and, and as my wife said, if I have to go to Lakai and spend one more meal in Spanish or French, I'm going to shoot myself. And so. I got to be good friends with the Australian IOC member, and he he came over with his family. And he goes, Bob, I just want to go somewhere, mate, where we're, we can just be alone, be with my family, nothing fancy. Like, do you have something Asian? So I took him to Cafe Trang. And <laughs> while we were there, they brought out a soup that had the little flame underneath, and her son reached across, <laughs> tipped it over, and it started her sweater flaming and I ran up to beat it off and I'm you know just to put out the fire and what do you, you know I just can't hit the woman's chest to put the fire out I'm just standing there going ah and her husband is just keeps eating he goes fire that's all he did and so it was the the waitress came over and put the fire out and as she's doing it she fell backwards and took out they had a divider you know to hide the bathroom that knocked the divider over and I go this truly is one of the best meals I've been to in my life. You know, just something you remember. So Cafe Trang, it was my favorite restaurant. Just when I when I'd go out with friends or by myself or my wife, always Cafe Trang. Nothing fancy. So Cafe Trang. All right, that's an awesome story. That is an incredible story. I've got a little map on my website and all the restaurants that everyone is nominated, I put there on the map. So we'll definitely throw Cafe Trang on there as well. Before we can, let you go, you, you can I add one more thing? Yes. Um, just, just in final, um, just so you know, what we did has been recognized. Um, I've been asked to sit on a, a council, an advisory council for the next Olympics on youth sport. 
So what we did was recognized. And you know what? We're going to do it again. Well, I think for all of us, uh, it would be a, a fitting capstone to everything to, to do it once more. Now, Bob, this has been a tremendous experience for me. I'm so glad that you took the time. If people want to know more about the initiatives that you're working on, the work that you're doing, and they want to reconnect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, to reconnect with me, you know, personally is, you know, pretty easy. I can give you my email address. I use my personal one because it's still from Skeleton. So it's skellybob1 at msn.com. And it's just as old as prior to the games, skellybob1, msn.com. As far as the initiatives, um, we actually have been working on a paper and it should be released quite soon. And um, so I, I, it's actually Luke Bodensteiner, who's now running Soldier Hollow. And he, he's going to be overseeing all of this. So Luke would be the person to contact. I, I'm just on the council with Luke, and it's just an honor to be on there with all, the, all of the other sports people from around the state. But they're pulling on me as, okay, what did you do during the games? How did you do this? And it's, it's exciting to hear them go, oh, well, that's just like such and such program. I go, well, it is such and such program with the new name. All right. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate the time once again. Safe travels down to Southern Utah. Enjoy your time down there, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Hey, thank you very, very much, um, Christian. It's been great to be back in touch again. <laughs>